live in a world where sexual oppression and violence, especially against women, is rampant. Turning on the TV, listening to the radio, or just looking through the papers, there's always a story about cases like these. A few days ago, I was looking at the front page of one of the major newspapers here in the UK. Of the eight headline stories, six of them were stories about violence and or sexual abuse against women and children. Recently, there was news about the nabbing of the ringleaders of the sex trafficking ring. And another story about a young lady who was falsely arrested by a police officer and later ends up being murdered by him. When those who have been put in place to protect you become the predator. When will it stop? Will it ever stop? Where is God? Is he seeing all these? Where's his face? When people are dying trying to cross the borders in despicable conditions. When little girls and young women are being sold into slavery and trafficked for sex work. These stories have been going on from time immemorial, as far back as Bible times. Come with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 16 is one of the earliest recorded stories of the abuse and violence faced by women, especially slaves, with Hagar as the victim. Hagar has everything going against her as an Egyptian maid. She is discriminated against as a result of her status as a slave, her race and her sex, not very different from the world we live in today. And she is seen as an object, not as a human being. Her mistress, Sarai, unable to bear children, hands her over to her husband, Abram, as wife, for him to do with her as he pleased, to sleep with her for the sole purpose of procreation. Hagar had no say in the matter. We see her getting pregnant and having to run away after being maltreated by this same mistress who she has devoted her whole life and body to. By running away, Hagar becomes the first woman in the Bible to free herself from oppressive structures put in place by man. This was not the end of her story. We see her go back to her mistress and bearing Ishmael. It is not hard to imagine the animosity that must have been rife between these women, considering the situation of things. Once Isaac was born, Sarah was keen to do away with her, eventually seizing the opportunity when she heard Ishmael, Hagar's son, teasing Isaac, her own son. Hagar and her son Ishmael are sent away into the wilderness, and in typical Hagar fashion, she tries to run away again when faced with the possible death of her son from dehydration. It is easy to find escaping or running away as a solution to our problems. As tempting as this is, we must remember that it is only a temporary solution. Despite this, Hagar, an exceptional woman, has an encounter with God every time she runs away. The first time was so moving, she names God as the one who sees her. The second time around, we see God intervene and come through for her and her son. We see that story in Genesis chapter 21, verse 8 to 21. 
Hagar becomes the first woman to be visited by God in the wilderness, leading the way for numerous other wilderness encounters which we read about in the Holy Book. Another woman who suffered sexual assault at the hands of a powerful man is Bathsheba. The second book of Samuel, chapter 11 and 12, tells her story. It describes her as a woman of unusual beauty. She was taking a bath when the king, walking on his rooftop, spotted her and sent someone to find out about her. He was told that she was the wife of one of his soldiers. Yet, that did not stop him from summoning her and sleeping with her. Imagine the king who should have been fighting in battle for his people. He was at home instead and taking advantage of the wife of one of his soldiers for his own sexual gratification. He had no intention of making her one of his numerous wives because if he wanted to, as the king, he had such power. He only wanted to satisfy an immediate sexual urge after which he sent her back home, thinking that was the end. A few weeks later, what happens? Bathsheba finds out that she's pregnant and sends a message to King David. What does David do in a bid to cover up this dastardly act? He asks for her husband, Uriah, to return back home from the battleground to lay, to lay with her. Uriah refuses. David then invites him to dinner and gets him drunk, hoping that that will sway him and his decision to stay away from his wife. Still, Uriah stood his ground. A drunken Uriah was more honourable than the sober David. David's efforts to get Uriah to sleep with his wife Bathsheba proves futile. He could have given up here. But as it is with sin, once you get started, it is difficult to stop. He ends up arranging for him to be murdered in cold blood. He even had Uriah himself deliver the letter that led to his own death. To cover up one sin, another sin is committed. Therefore, the best way to stop sin is before it even starts. After Uriah had been killed, David marries Bathsheba. Of course, this does not rectify any of his actions and he still gets punished for it. Bathsheba loses not only her husband, but a child as well. How tragic it must have been for her. All of this due to the selfishness of one man and although we are not told any specific engagement between God and Bathsheba, it is very clear whose side it is on. Her son is blessed by God and becomes part of the lineage of the Messiah. Flipping our Bible a few pages after the story of Bathsheba, we stumble upon Tama, another one who was preyed upon by her own flesh and blood. We can find this story in 2 Samuel chapter 13. Tamar was the daughter of King David and she is described as very beautiful. 
and the half-brother Amnon fell desperately in love with her to the point of obsession. Amnon confided in his cousin Jonadab about his feelings towards his sister and he then comes up with a crafty plan to take advantage of her like father like son right? Poor Tema. There she was taking care of her sick brother when he grabbed her demanding to forcefully have his way with her. She pleaded with him but all her pleas fell on deaf ears. Amnon rapes her and then we are told that immediately after his love for her turned to hatred. This goes to show that love and lust are very different. Lust often disguises as love and there is a very thin line between lust and hate. After performing this very despicable act on his half-sister, he sends her away. We know that God strongly forbids rape, but sending Tamar away was an even greater crime because it made it look as if it was all her fault. Of course, there were no witnesses to the crime and this incident has destroyed her chances of marriage. In those days, you could only be given away in marriage if you were a virgin. King David did absolutely nothing to address the situation. His whole family and the nation he ruled was in chaos. And to be fair, he probably wasn't the best person to chastise his son considering what he himself had just done. We must remember that God's standards for moral conduct shall not be suspended when we deal with family members. When we look away, cover it up, or just simply do nothing, we are silently perpetuating these things. It is interesting to note that the meaning of Tamar is palm tree, which is a symbol of justice in the Jewish tradition, customized to the story of Deborah. Justice is what women all over the world require. Tamar in this story did not get justice, and neither did several other women in Bible times and in this day. Tamar rightly treated this disgraceful incident as the calamity that it was. She did not blame herself, saying, maybe it was my fault. She went public and lamented over her loss, tearing her robe and putting ashes on her head, not giving any place to shame. If you have been abused, know that it is not in any way your fault. No means no. Tamar pleaded with her brother. She asked him not to force her, even offered to marry him if he asked their father. Still, Amnon raped her. Today, more than 80% of women who have been sexually assaulted know their abuser. There's no need to hide it or cover up. Report it to the right authorities and let appropriate action be taken regardless of who the abuser is. <sighs> Taking a small detour, we move on to the story recorded in the book of Esther. Xerxes was a pagan king and he was a big deal in those days. 
his kingdom stretched from Corinthia, India to Ethiopia, ruling over 127 provinces. Now, King Xerxes decided to throw a banquet for all his nobles, also inviting military officers from Persia. Imagine all these men drinking endlessly for several days. The Bible records that the initial celebration lasted 180 days. Then the king hosted another banquet for seven days for the people in the fortress of Susa, where his palace was. At the end of this merriment, in high drunken spirits, King Xerxes orders his queen Vashti to appear before them with the crown on her head for the nobles and the men to gaze upon her beauty. Vashti declines, and rightly so. You might wonder why. After all, it seems like a harmless request, and it's only normal for men to want to show off their beautiful wives, right? No. Vashti's refusal might be better understood if you're familiar with the Jewish tradition that she was ordered to appear before the king naked with only the crown on her head. And that is why she refused. Even today, Vashti is regarded as a heroine in the Purim story. Imagine having all these drunk, perverted men leering at you, a whole queen. How rude and disrespectful of Xerxes. Now, instead of him to admit that he was wrong and backtrack, Vashti gets punished for it. A punishment that was chosen by these same men. The penalty was for Vashti to be banished and another queen be chosen in her stead. So agents were appointed to bring beautiful young virgin women into the royal harem in the palace of Susa. Hergai, one of the king's eunuchs, was put in charge of them, making sure they all received beauty treatments and things like that. Esther was one of these women. Now, at this point, these women more or less belonged to the king. They became his wives and concubines, and he could do with them as he pleased in accordance to the laws of the land. And every single one of these ladies were trying to become queen. I mean, who wouldn't want to be queen if given the opportunity? They spent 12 months in Hegai's care, where they were nurtured with oils and spices made especially for them. And when each woman's turn came, she could take whatever she wanted from the harem along with her to spend the night with the king. It was very common sight back home in my home country of Nigeria to see banners and posters tagged the night with the king and other variations of that. And these were usually adverts or invitations to church programs, uh, prayer sessions or vigils by uh, different Christian denominations. I always asked myself, what really happened on this said night with the king? In history, the Roman and Persian empires were two of the most sexually depraved empires. I mean, 
a Persian king who has virgins lawfully prepared for him with oils and spices. What does he do with them? A lot of ladies had gone into the royal chambers and the Bible states that the king was highly impressed with Esther. Now, what do you think she did? What must have transpired between her and King Xerxes for him to decide right away that she just had to be his queen and set the royal crown on her head? Let's ponder on that for a moment. It is said that Esther was ahead of all her contemporaries. Rightly, she must have been extremely good looking to have been among the chosen ones and also well behaved because we are told that she obtained favour in the sight of Haggai. When it was Esther's turn to go in, she heeded Haggai's advice and took only what he suggested. And obviously it worked because we are told the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. The one night with the king was not a romantic evening. It was an evening filled with desperation. Esther had to do all she could to win the king over. This does not mean that Esther was promiscuous or immoral. What she did was lawful according to the laws of the land. Esther and the other virgins were striving to please the king and get the crown. God's favour went ahead of her and that is why she was favoured by Haggai so that when she went in to meet the king she will be the best among the rest. Esther did all of this to be instrumental in the deliverance of her people, which she did not even mention her allegiance to, as this could have gotten her disqualified. Esther was queen, but she was slave to that position. It was definitely not a Disney movie situation. She feared desperately for her life, which was a legitimate and founded fear. The story of Esther is not a story of romance. It is a tragic story of slavery, misogyny, sexual oppression and loss. Esther, whose original name was Hadassah, had to abandon her Jewish identity in order to stand a chance in the society. One common theme in all these stories above is that there was nobody to stand up to the offenders. Abraham did not attempt to question Sarah's choices or decisions. King David's men could not make him see reason with all his despicable decisions. Jonadab did not counsel his cousin Amnon. None of the numerous men Xerxes had with him could call him to order. In fact, they egged him on. Dear young men, reading or listening or watching this, there is a need to be careful of the company you keep. Friendships between men who objectify women creates an environment where sexual assault, including rape, becomes action. Look at Jonadab and Amnon. While Jonadab did not explicitly suggest rape, he advises his cousin Amnon to deceive their father and Leotama into a situation where she is helpless. Again, when those who are meant to protect you become the predator. 
even though Amnon was responsible for this crime, Jonadab is complicit as well. You cannot be an innocent bystander when your male friends are acting out of line, being lustful, or feeling entitled to women's or girls' bodies. You constantly need to ask yourself, where do I stand? Let the words which Apostle Paul wrote to his dear son in the Lord Timothy constantly resonate with you. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 2, Treat older women as you hold your mother, and treat younger women with all purity as you hold your own sisters. How you read this story of Esther, Abraham and Hagar, David and Bathsheba, and other similar scenarios reveals much of your heart and your posture towards men and women. In all of these stories, women have been sexually oppressed. It is very important that we tell these stories to recover their dignity and enable us to see beyond the oppression that these women faced, where their only crime was being a woman. These women stood up to the violent misogyny of a pagan world. They were brave and courageous, and they persevered to rise above circumstances. It is high time we have these hard conversations. We cannot continue to shy away from topics relating to sexualization or domestic violence, because the truth is, these situations are happening right under our noses. And it is not always clear-cut or obvious. Sometimes it might just be the husband who is just a little difficult to deal with when he's had a few drinks. Maybe turning a blind eye or walking. Sometimes we even run away is how we deal with these issues. It is reassuring to know that you are not alone, even when you feel that way. These stories were not put in the Bible just because. I believe that God has given them to us to learn from them. And when we are ready, and more importantly, when it is safe to do so, we can read this story and have our eyes opened. It is my desire for our churches to be safe places for women, where they can flourish and abound in all God desires for them to be. We must be able to see the true heroes where tradition only saw side characters to the stories of men.